0: This is your Everest. Greetings, culture vultures, and welcome to This is Your Everest, the bonus analogue TV podcast that Ian King still isn't on. Nevertheless... I've got an exciting treat this week. It's not just me. We've got friend of the podcast and venerable commentator on issues such as television, football, football kits, sport in general. But old television, I think, is his uh, key qualification for this. Chris Oakley. Hello, Chris. Hello, Ed.
1: How nice to talk to you.
0: This is very exciting. You're very much an old TV buff.
1: <laughs> yes, for my sins yeah i mean like like yourself and like ian um i think we share a childhood which was spent mostly in front of a tv and and if if there's no <laughs> other reason to be proud to be british then then it's it must be that that sole reason
0: people are so dismissive of putting children in front of television sets and just leaving them to it but i'm a big fan yeah um It it, it produces well-rounded and knowledgeable individuals, if nothing else. Today, however, we're not going to look at something that's been on TV. This is something from the cinema. This is Look at Life. Now, Look at Life was a series produced by the Rank Organisation from 1959 to 1969 of short films about, you'll be surprised to learn, life Advancements in science and technology, social changes. They had some social responsibility stuff like road safety and civil defence. And they also had reportage. They had um, stuff from behind the Iron Curtain and all sorts. But they would show these 10 minute long films before the feature film at the cinema. At Odeon and Gourmont Cinemas. My first question is, do you recall this? Because I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, roughly of, of your vintage And he said that he remembers these sort of things being on at at the cinema when he used to go.
1: Well, no, if I'm honest, because, see, I was born in 1971, and I know of no such thing. And it was only, like you mentioned it, in passing recently. And when you said, look at life, I thought, look at life, Then that rings a bell. What's that, what's that? And in the past, at some point, I'd seen fragments of some of these films. And as soon as I heard let's just say, one narrator, who I think we'll be mentioning fairly shortly, it's suddenly <laughs> the penny dropped. I thought, yes, of course I've seen these before. But that's on YouTube. I, I never saw these at the cinema. And that's a shame, really, because I, I I think I'd have quite liked this as an entree to the to the main feature on, on my visits. But uh, no. Well,
0: they used to, of course, have newsreels at the cinema, very famously. Mm. But by 1959, the coronation and so forth has increased... TV ownership to the point that more or less everyone's got a TV and they get in all of their news and so forth from there. Yeah. So these are separate in a way they're some of the most revealing films that you, you about the time that you'll ever see. Not necessarily in so much as the people who are actually on the camera but the people who think that the camera's not watching them <laughs> tell us a lot, I think. Yes. We've selected 5 of these films, all of them are from 1959, apart from the first one, which was from 1961. Five of over 500 that were made over 10 years, and they never once changed in all the time that they they were going. They had the same jaunty music, and in 1969, "Daddy O," that's just that's just. That's just not cutting the mustard anymore, is
1: it? And yet, like the the, the sort of jaunty theme tune, which seemed to last throughout, it's very sort of carry on film uh, stop. You can imagine at the start of any of the carry on films. And you know how long they went on for. Well, exactly, yeah.
0: There is a definite carry on. I think there's a definite carry on thing to just British life (laughs) in the early 1960s, which is reasonably well captured by some of these films let's uh, let's start with jobs with a three
2: all
3: of us get bored with our jobs at times and wonder whether there isn't some more exciting way of earning a living well here's one of them there are thrills every day for the steel erector working on jobs like this new suspension bridge across the River Tamar near Plymouth.
0: This is the newest of all of the films, 1961, narrated by Tim Turner, who was the go-to narrator for these films. Mm. And the, the basic premise of this film is if your job is boring and you find you, you know, work a day drudgery, mm. a little bit samey, why don't you try one of these jobs? <laughs> I think the reason that people don't want to try one of these jobs is about to become abundantly clear. You'd have to be stark staring mad, essentially. You would, you would. I mean, the first job is a steel erector. Mm. And I think that the key thing about all of these jobs is the 1959 safety precautions. Or lack thereof. Complete absence thereof. They had 40 men clambering about up to 250 feet above the River Tamar in Devon. And the only safety equipment that I could see was there was a boat in, in the river waiting to, you know, fish their corpse out. Yeah. So, that, you know, their wives wouldn't have to just bury an empty casket. That was it. The whole thing. Yeah. I think the thing that really interested me about the steel erector bit was that you could see the hierarchy at play just by what hat people were <laughs> Life was simpler back then. (laughs) You just needed to look at look at the hats, because the foreman obviously he's got his bowler hat, and then everybody else has got their flat cap.
1: Yes, and in this case, uh, he's got he's got a megaphone as well. As I recall, I think he uh, he's he's sort of barking out his orders.
0: Well, I think you're going to need one at the scale that they're working. This this thing they walk along these swaying mesh catwalks, which were legitimately terrifying. Just on their own. But the the attraction of this job is you can earn up to £30 a week, which at the time is pretty good money. It's about double the average wage. And if you were a soldier, which most people were in 1959, (laughs) I think you would get about £7 a week. Right. So £30 a week... And the only the only problem is you might die. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a terrible death falling from a great height, yeah. Terrible 250-foot plunge Sheevers. into the River Tamar. <laughs> terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But you do get the impression, and I think you get this impression throughout all of these films, that Britain was very much a hive of industry in 1959. Oh, yeah. Possibly because, obviously, the whole country had been destroyed... <laughs> during the war and it needed to be rebuilt, but they were rebuilding it with some gusto.
1: Yeah, and, and also, I mean, if you look at some of the other Look at Life films as well, you you get further proof of this because it does hold a mirror up to the vast national rebuilding programme that was going yeah. on. You see... <laughs> You see these open areas of wasteland and kids playing on the foundations of old buildings and things, and you go crikey, like it's just. And there was still a little bit of, of that around even when I was a kid, but not much. It well, it you know, especially in London, it was it was already starting to be redeveloped. But it's and if no, if for no other reason, that's what these films are, are good for, just to remind you this this is what it used to be like.
0: Absolutely, I, I watched some of these with my dad this week, yeah. and he'll tell he'll tell you about. I mean, my dad was born in nineteen fifty four, right. Um, and he grew up in Portsmouth playing in the in the bomb sites. I'm sure that I mean you know you're from the east end of London so I'm sure that there were still a few bomb sites around even when you were a child although obviously as you say the east end of London's uh, general approach to rebuilding is to do it very very fast.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, I know you've been sort of mentioning on on the other podcasts with with Ian, you know, about like the professionals and stuff like that. And you watch, even when you watch those, those are late seventies, early eighties, and you're still seeing yeah. bomb sites and and wasteland yeah, in yeah. London, in this in central London. It's uh, and that was you know twenty years or something after these were made.
0: The rebuilding of Britain, uh, I think, is covered by the second job in in, in uh, jobs with a thrill, quarry man. Mm. It's about the only time you'll see people in Look at Life not smoking <laughs> It's when they're sticking dynamite down holes.
3: At this 60-year-old quarry in Cornwall, skilled men blast out four to 5,000 tonnes of stone for Britain's new roads every week. Before a blasting, the rock face must be prepared. Loose rocks, which might be hurled hundreds of yards, are dislodged. Holes are then drilled in the rock face for placing the charges. About 15 sticks of dynamite... The first and last, fitted with fuses, are lowered into position. No smoking, no matches, nor any other dangerous material is allowed nearby, and no studs on boots that may set off a spark.
0: Unbelievable amount of work that went in for what turned out from one blast at Mm. the the quarry in Cornwall. One blast would make up to a quarter of a mile of new motorway. (laughs) Which, I mean, at the time, obviously, motorways were the... The new trend. Mm. This was this was central to the whole scheme of rebuilding Britain. It's, it's going to be a wonderful modern world where we can get around really fast. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out entirely that way, but they weren't to know that at the time. And these, these old Cornish boys <laughs> sticking dynamite down
1: holes. spark up a storm.
0: Well, a, a literal storm. But again... Safety precautions apart from obviously no no uh, hobnail
1: boots or no hobnail boots, cigarettes, no passing traffic,
0: no passing traffic. The flat cap as a safety device though remains <laughs> um, <laughs> quite quite what they were expecting. If a rock was blown into the air and landed on your nut after that,
1: but it's all right, because they're, they're, they're hiding in a little tin shed when they <laughs> when they press the button, <laughs> yeah. so it's that's fine.
0: I imagine that it was exactly the same thing you know, during the air raids. You know, tin shed flat cap no, yep. nothing's gonna you know no one's gonna tell me any different this is all fine <laughs> the steel men section we meet Jim Lloyd 56 and Ron Cooper 45 an ongoing <laughs> an ongoing theme throughout all of these podcasts that we've been doing is that you can't tell how old somebody is from the old days <laughs> no. I thought that Jim Lloyd and Ron Cooper actually were in pretty good nick especially considering that they worked an open face furnace where they were heating (laughs) steel to 1600 degrees centigrade so they could make brake drums I believe probably yes that's right I think one of the the key things about Britain at the time is that they were making all sorts of things for other people and then transporting them all around the country this bridge in the river Tamar was being built in Darlington and then brought down Mm -hmm. presumably all of these um Brake drums in Chester were being sent down to British Leyland. It's j God almighty. But again, twenty to thirty pounds a week is not to be sniffed
1: at No, um Getting hot and sweaty, you know, and <laughs> wiping your brow every five minutes is—I mean—I think I could probably put up with that for that yeah. sort of wage, really.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, well, if anything, it seems to have
1: preserved them. I mean, I would say—I was just going to say—that I think the guy was uh, forty-five. I mean, because I'm—I'm going to be turning fifty in about a couple of months' <laughs> time, and I'm looking at him thinking he looks about fifteen years older than me. Even that—I mean—he's still in reasonable nick, but he—he he, he hasn't aged brilliantly uh, with with the greatest respect to him but but I mean or either that or I've I've aged quite well well yeah I don't think that's it's a great
0: it's a great watching old tv always makes you feel better about yourself (laughs) if you if you're feeling a bit broken down and rickety and like you've seen your best years just watch some old an old episode of Bob's Full House will probably do it where they (laughs) introduce somebody and they're 26 and you think I'm old enough to be a father And they look (laughs) unbelievably old Unbelievably scratchy And fall into pieces
3: Clamped onto the stack A three and a half ton derrick Lifts a section into place It's bolted to the one below, and then the derrick is hauled up another 20 feet by hand, clamped, and is then ready to lift the next section. High winds, which make the stack and derrick sway, and wet weather, making the steelwork slippery, slow down progress. And these men are working on tight schedules. The cream of their pay comes as a bonus. With a four to five-year apprenticeship, qualified steeplejacks can average 20 to 25 pounds a week, and they earn every penny of it.
0: The... Penultimate scary, I mean, thrilling job is <laughs> Steeplejack. Sadly, no Fred Dibner here. No. But this was uh, and this is obviously pre-Fred Dibner, because Fred Dibner spent a lot of his time knocking these chimney stacks down. And here they were building one in Workington. Yeah. A metal derrick erected to next to the stack so they can shin up it in the high winds and rain of... And the oh, rain. God, it... Just unbelievably terrifying. Again, I
1: mean, I was was going to ask how how are you with heights? Generally, absolutely
0: horrendous with heights. Um, (laughs) Obviously, fair enough. I've I've had my 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 fair share of run-ins with gravity, and nowadays any height Mm. is just. These people clambering up this derrick. I mean, again. Four to five year apprenticeship and twenty to twenty five pounds a week, but the twenty to twenty five pounds a week that it's, it's question begging because the, you know, are mm. you going to make it through the four to five year apprenticeship <laughs> it seems very very unlikely, although one thing we did see in this hard hats which gives you an indication of how dangerous they considered that
1: I should think so too I am by way of a personal anecdote about. How long was it? Seven or eight years ago, for about three uh, a three month period, I ended up working as a sign writer, which is something I'd not had any previous experience with. But I'd I'd got made redundant from my previous job as a web editor, so feet under the desk, no more. And so there was this local guy, and him and his wife were running this company as a sign writer. And I thought, oh, well, I can do that because I'm sort of I do graphic stuff and I'm creative and blah blah blah. Fine, get the job, and. At the end of the second week, the guy says, my boss sort of says, right, we're going to get these two uh, step ladders. Uh, we're going to take them outside to a shop that's about three three doors down. And we're going to replace the, the sort of wooden sign above that shop. And it's about 15 feet off the ground, I'm going to guess. <laughs> so basically, what his idea was, we'll put a plank across the two oh, no. ladders. This is carry-on film. And he said, right, up, up. Yeah, and, I was, and he said, up we go. I was like, what? Yeah. And... <laughs> I, I used to be all right with heights when I was a kid, and and yet there I was, <laughs> clinging on for dear life, looking down on the pavement below me. It wasn't that high up, but it, it bloody looked yeah, like it yeah, yeah. at the time. Well, they uh, and um, they do say that ten feet is maiming height.
0: Anything over ten feet, yeah, anything over ten feet, and you, it's a toss of a coin.
1: Well, it, yeah, it's certainly that was my perception of it. And and I said to this fellow, I said, like, so. Are there any like harnesses or anything we have to wear? Any? No, 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 don't need harnesses. And and, 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 we, and we sort of unscrewed this sign and, and put the new one. And I must have, I, I sweated like I was working in a steel furnace, quite frankly. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And, and afterwards, when I spoke to other people, they sort of said, well, it's the law. You've got to have harnesses. It doesn't matter if you're at 15 feet, 200 feet. You've got to wear a harness. It's the law these days. And this guy clearly thought, no, what do we have to worry about that? And so when I see this guy shinning up a chimney, <laughs> I just think, what are you thinking? Yeah, I know. It, I mean, it, we've we've not seen the like of, of people like that since John Noakes basically clambered up Big Ben. Yeah. And I think he was the last person I saw doing such a lunacy as that.
0: Uh, even he had a harness, probably.
1: He probably did, wearing it under his overall.
0: The The final job with a thrill I thought was something of an outlier. A wall of death rider at the Kurzle in Southend on Sea. Um, <laughs> 55 year old Tornado Smith. <laughs> what a name. R- rides a motorbike yeah. round the uh, the old wall of death, the vertical wooden drum. drum yeah, with his assistants, Irene Taplin and Yvonne, Yvonne Stank, <laughs> who, you know, they're 22 and 24. I mean, that's a whole lifetime of wall of death riding ahead of them. <laughs> But oddly enough, no mention of salary there. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know quite whether or not Tornado Smith had made his fortune. Mm-hmm. One, one would think not. But but still, <laughs> I mean, when you've compared it with all the rest of the stuff, I'm sure that, you know, riding a wall of debt, Because back, back then, I'm sure that Tornado Smith had occasionally been inveigled upon to have a lion in there or something. Put a lion on the back of it. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's, it's dangerous, it's a job with a thrill, but it's not really in
1: quite the same league. Although, I have to say, many of the time I, I went to the local job centre and was looking for a card that said Wall of Death <laughs> Rider and never saw it, if, if only.
0: Well, I, I'm afraid that Tornado <laughs> Smith may have got there before you that day. <laughs> he
2: took that one. Yeah. On the books, they describe me as a refuse collector, but you can call me Dusty seven o'clock we start, I bet you're still in bed, but then we don't work as late as some people so it evens itself out. Some of these bins are pretty heavy, up to 35 pounds. That lady was what we call a payoff. Any little thing that we can get on top like that we share out at the end of the week. A lot of customers expect us to do extra work and give us nothing. We call them jackals.
0: All the rest of the films that we watched, all from 1959, the first year of uh, Look at Life. And this is obviously their first flush. They're very excited. And there's some excellent Mm. films that we uh, had a look at. First one, Dustman's Day. This is narrated by none other than Sid
1: James. Sidney James, yes.
0: An extremely welcome piece (laughs) of narration. And I think, um, obviously, at, at the time, Sid James was big business mm-hmm. hancock's half hour was probably his major hit at the time yeah i think he brings a certain amount of that sid james persona from hancock's half hour to these mm. in in a way that i consider to be slightly unconvincing we'll get on to that i think with the Ugh. the next one that he does this one obviously you know he's just telling the story of of a dustman although you wouldn't guess it he was a dustman when he turns up, the well attired middle aged man turning up for work, yeah, in a Ford Anglia. Guess guess what I do, dustman. <laughs> Spectacular. I couldn't couldn't quite credit. He was perfectly dressed for any office job in the city. Yeah, and there he was, straight into his old dustman clothes. <laughs> I I wonder how many of our venerable refuse collectors today turn up for work dressed like that
1: yeah it was what slightly caught me out but but probably because i'm a bit dim is like i'd started watching some of these films just obviously in advance of doing this podcast and getting more uh getting a feel for them and and the probably the next film that we're going to mention uh marketplace i saw that one first which has also got Sid James as as the narrator. Yeah. So I watched that, then th- then I watched Dustman's Day, and so I hear Sid James again. I thought fabulous, Just totally reassured by that. But then in the opening sort of spiel. He sort of says, "Oh, this is me arriving for work," and I half expected Sid James to get out of that <laughs> Ford Anglia. And then I'm starting yeah, to think, did he used to be a dustman? And I thought, no, he wasn't even from London. He was from South Africa. He used to be a hairdresser. Um, yes, yeah. yeah. And it just threw me briefly because I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the box. But anyway, and, and but there it's, we are. And, and he's basically taking on the 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 voice, if you like, of this of this guy who goes and gets changed into his buff. Uh, donkey jacket and overalls and he's ready for work Mm.
0: yeah there there are lots of um dustbins and piles of rubbish in this episode one one thing that fascinated me was the difference in the rubbish that you had in 1959 to what you would get today Mm. because nowadays a dustbin is likely to be filled with old potato peels and Melon rinds and disposable nappies. Um, disposable nappies and plastic. Back then, all of the rubbish seemed to be a metal pail filled with ash and cinders and dust, with occasion like a bone sticking out. Occasionally. <laughs> uh, and paper. it's fascinating to, to, to yeah, that it, if nothing else, they have captured social change right there in the. <laughs> Tech, everything society technology everything has changed and you can tell how much life has changed by what we're throwing out
1: and and not only that i, I, I don't know if it's just a reflection on the part of london i grew up in and, and lived in for a long time but there wasn't any um, old clapped out sofas dumped just outside the gate or you know there was, no, no. There was none of that it was you know
0: just you know that's in. true although there was a woman who paid him off to take her old man's armchair <laughs> so subtle. it didn't look like it was a particularly run down armchair so I think there was obviously some Just intrigue going hint. on
1: there yeah, get off your backside and- <laughs>
0: <laughs> the other interesting part uh, and again this is something that it captured that was social change that it couldn't possibly have anticipated is when you look down the terrace at the and watch the rag and bone man clop by with his horse and and cart the amount of cars in that street was outnumbered by the number of prams okay. now i know we talk we talk about baby boomers a lot nowadays but th- there it was writ large yeah we you know we can't afford a car but we we're, we're shitting out kids <laughs> people just had prams just in the street, like people chain their bikes up now. <coughs> so, no, no room, no room in the house for for the pram. Yeah, because obviously,
1: you know. I was going to say, not your sort of cheap, sort of plastic kids pram like you get now. They like actual your metal no. framed pram,
0: proper. Yeah, yeah, perambulator, miniaturised.
1: Yeah. yeah, and a scene, basically a scene straight out of Steptoe and Son. I mean, like, complete with flopping like, yeah. walls and like completely deserted street and slums in the background. I mean, it's. Again, yeah. that just time stamps it perfectly really yeah
0: it 's fantastic it 's better it 's better than a museum yeah, in fact, because it teaches you so much, and it actually it teaches you so much about where where people 's heads were at because mm. again, Britain is rebuilding mm. now, you take the modern council housing estate or the the flats and you get the big bins. That are fed by the, the, the garbage chutes, and they put them in these new fangled lorries with the hydrate ram. And they shovel it all down to Chelsea <laughs> and stick it on a barge.
1: <laughs> where the footballers come from. Yeah,
0: and then they see where the footballers come from. <laughs> and then they send, they, they send it down your end of the uh, river, down towards Essex. Yes, thanks. Where they, they then load all of the rubbish onto a train. And take it to I don't know where it will be, somewhere in the the, the marshes of Brain Tree <laughs> of or, Essex or, or something or Kent, and then they just f- fill the ground
2: with it, like Homer Simpson. Taken along the line to a bit of wasteland, half swampy, been a dead loss for centuries. This neither good to man nor beast. Spread it around, levelling out the bumps and filling in the holes. And in a few years, this will be valuable building land.
0: It probably was. Yeah. But I wonder how many people who, who live in, you know, all these places, uh, Braintree and Romford and... Rainham. Yeah, know that all of the, these lovely uh, new-built houses that are slowly subsiding into a pile <laughs> of old... Apple cores, <laughs> uh, were just built on a big pile of old rubbish. It's fascinating.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be people there that moved into their lovely new house and started redeveloping their back garden, only to find that they were essentially digging up what? old, old, terribly nappies and and heaven knows yeah, what else.
0: Yeah. And and also, the walls are all made from repurposed paper and card, as we learn when we go to <laughs> Glasgow, where they've got the most. Advanced recycling plant in, mm. the, in the country. There's a man picking through the rubbish that was going past. And it's got cardboard box <laughs> or tin can. Well, actually, the tin cans were collected by magnetically a magnet. Yeah. Yeah. Very sensible. But the, the paper and card, which accounted currently for 12% of all the rubbish, was sent off to become drywall. So th- mm. you've got a brand new house... Built on rubbish, from rubbish. <laughs> and this this was the great rebuilding plan of Britain. I think it says a lot.
1: Yes, the foundations of of modern modern Britain is essentially all the crap that you're turfing out every week.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh man. A um, hundred thousand dustmen in England earning nine to ten pounds a week. Well, I mean, if any of them fancy it, it's, uh, there's some good jobs in death defiance. Mm. So they can always change, but uh, one of them, Dave Thomas, is uh, also the European amateur heavyweight boxing champion.
1: Yeah, wouldn't you know it? Yeah, yeah.
0: Very pleased to see he had a proper dustman coat uh, <laughs> with the shiny, the shiny back and the sort of felty arms. I never really understood why dustmen wear that coat. No, but it is—it should be the law because that is a proper dustman. You see that coat and you go, "Oh, is a dustman." <laughs>
1: Yes. My dad had one of those coats, and I'm not sure quite where he got it from, because he was never a dustman. He worked in a paint factory for about 18 years, Berger Paints, <laughs> if anyone remembers that that old name from the past. Um, but yeah, he I remember one of those coats hanging up in our little, what we used to call the lobby, where, where all the coats were hanging up, and I thought, oh, it's a funny old coat, but... Uh, he's, I, uh, that he's a strange coat. Yeah, uh, d- yeah. Dustman Dave of Merrily he used to be known as, and um, he went on to become a taxi driver. Bless him. I think he died earlier this year. He, to live to a fair age, I'd say.
0: Well, I would, yeah, I should say so. I mean, dangerous occupation being the European amateur <laughs> heavyweight boxing <laughs> champion, champion of Europe. I'm not really sure what that entailed
3: back then, but we'll 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 leave it. Once upon a time, a shepherd called Caldy noticed that his sheep were feeding on the berries of an evergreen bush. A moment later, he stared open-mouthed as the sheep began to dance and frolic and leap about. Putting two and two together, he had some berries, too. And in no time, those sheep had a very hip shepherd. Two cappuccini and one espresso. That, says the legend, is how coffee was born. Coffee is a stimulant. It stimulates the nerves, alerts the brain, wakes up the, um, yes. And coffee is big business.
0: 1959's coffee bar. Mm. This is a fascinating because now I knew about I knew about coffee bars. Yes, because obviously they were very trendy. 1950s, hipsters, beatniks, jazzers, <laughs> greasers. <laughs> yeah. They're all they're all there in abundance yeah. in uh, in the in the coffee bar. This was the the trendy thing. I'm not quite sure when uh, coffee bars sort of fell from favour. Yeah. But obviously coffee bars have, in their own way, come roaring back.
1: Yeah. But not, not, not quite like these. No, I mean, I don't know when they <laughs> fell out of favour, but I know when they arrived, apparently 1952 was when it started. So this is like seven years in from that. So they've had a chance to yeah. sort of bed in and, and get popular. And, and as we find out in the film, sort of uh, in many cases, a lot of them kind of go bust. Because of the because the yeah. irresponsible people nursing one cup of coffee over a ten hour period and
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah well as, as they say the uh, uh, overheads are high if you spend more than thirty minutes in there with one cup of coffee it's a loss <laughs> and then they've started the started to serve food now mm. they they mentioned spaghetti bolognese I don't want to eat a spaghetti bolognese from nineteen fifty nine I don't care what anybody says <laughs> but. It is, as you say, seven years since uh, the the first big gadget machine arrived in Soho. Uh, Soho. Yeah, and you can see that there's been a good run up for a lot of these people because the grey pallor of all of the people in this it's these are people who've spent seven years in a coffee bar in <laughs> Soho. They haven't <laughs> seen daylight for a long,
1: long time.
0: Well, uh, they, 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 some of them look genuinely unwell. <laughs>
1: well, the thing actually on on this, when I saw there was a film called Coffee Bar, I thought, right, well, I I like a coffee like most people, so I'm I'm sort of curious to see this, and like yourself, I mean, I'm sort of aware of the of the fifties coffee bar boom as it was, um, but before seeing the film, my expectation was that we'd see people going into these somewhat slightly drab. Um, outlets on the high street sitting down to basically have a cup of Cafe. I didn't really mm. expect to see proper working espresso machines. I thought they'd basically go and say, can I have a cup of, you know, milky coffee? Thank you very much. Sit down and drink it. I didn't realise that because in the film you see people, you know, can I have a, an espresso? Can I have a cappuccino? And I was sort of, again, perhaps being a little bit dim, but I was kind of surprised by that really. Well, and also the, the huge array of
0: different types of, of, bar, different establishments. Mm. It's like the, all of the, the trendy, trendy pubs that you get in, I mean, certainly in Brighton. Every pub's got its own little theme. It's got mm. its own decor. This was, without question, the most fascinating one for me because yeah. of the people. Just the pe- just sitting there, people watching. <laughs> there was the man who spoke entirely in Cockney Rhyming's life. <laughs> there, there were, uh. there were the... Astrologers having an argument in what? the bottom of a in, in, in the basement of a Soho coffee bar called the French, which looked like a newsagent from the outside. But yeah. in, in the basement, there were three astrologers having a ferocious argument, and one of them had the reddest face I have ever seen. <laughs> also, you've got pasty beatniks, socialists like, yeah, socialists real rampaging socialists there was one there was in the arty one the partisan i think it's called The where you've got chess you've got art for sale and every every penny that they're making is going towards printing ink for their left-wing journal <laughs> it is an absolute this is hancock's half hour this is the sort of thing <laughs> tony hancock would go out he'd go to one of these and he'd come back and he'd report about the sort of people that you saw in withering terms jazzers the, 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 my favorite part of all was when there was a square a square no less going in somebody's coffee bar and standing by the bar and getting near the jukebox and the outraged beatniks actually i think that they were teds in this case i was going to say yeah yeah a lot of teds the, the whole place was just, the, the combustibility of such a place where you got crinoline, terraline, <laughs> polyester and all of the hair pomade. The whole, the whole place, that's probably what happened. It was King's Cross <laughs> underground style fire. <laughs> a, a Not a natural rock. fibre within a 10 mile radius. Yeah yeah exactly and Soho just went up in flames it was awful
1: I think my, my favourite one was um, where they sort of um, earwigged on these kind of theatrical types uh, you had like an agent <laughs> oh, yes and, um, and, and a fella going up to sort of two young women sort of saying oh they're doing auditions down the road at the such and such club and one of them gets yeah. up thinking oh in, and no not you sit down mm. and some of it was a bit kind of scripted but mm. all the better for it in a way Well,
0: yeah, it was actually in that same uh, bar, which was called uh, Le Grand. Yeah. For for 50 years, a hangout for writers and artists. Uh, There was a scene with two film producers, both wearing sunglasses, trying to pitch a film called I Was a Teenage Dracula from Outer Space. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Fabulous. God, I mean, as you say, very possibly there's a lot of scripted bits there. But... In the background, that's where that's where you see all of the real truth of these things. These okay. are the people who are going, "Oh God, there's a camera." Just just act normally; it'll go <laughs> away. And in so doing, they have captured their their moment. The, the just unbelievable amount of smoking. The, I can only yeah. imagine the smell, the fug.
2: It's no wonder <laughs> that
0: all the people who worked in those things have grey faces. They must have come home every night just feeling as sick as a pike the, with the clouds of fag smoke and coffee and, oh, and well and the bolognese. Uh, I, just,
1: I, I just love the fact that so many of them were themed uh, exactly as you say like the like pubs and things these days but like the macabre coffee house up. Mm, yes, yes, can't wait to get in there. <laughs> yes, Skeletons with on the wall.
0: Skeletons. The only thing that the macabre was missing was goths. Because they hadn't invented goths back then. If the, if the macabre was still going now, and uh, you know, let's hope that it is. Because as as we mm-hmm. say, two out of three coffee bars failed. They're, that place would be doing a roaring trade these
1: days. Uh, indeed, I and mean, not even unfortunately, not even the two eyes, the famous two eyes coffee bar, still exists. I think that went in mm. 1970, I believe, and. Um, that was that was a great one I thought because you you see in the background on that sequence you see the, the poster up for New Discovery Cliff Richard and yeah. <laughs> <you> think wow <laughs> yeah
0: well this is, I mean this is this is what happened people used to go I watched um, an episode about going out for a dance right which is also from 1959 and I, I just thought God isn't it. It's stark, it's a cultural wasteland, because nobody mm. has thought to invent the Beatles yet, even. <laughs> no. And these people are going out ballroom dancing, because there's just there's nothing on the telly. <laughs> the only thing you can do is go to the cinema and watch Look at Life, and then maybe, I don't know, Vertigo. <laughs> which I, I would take over the ballroom dancing, say, but no, nobody's come <laughs> well, up with indeed. anything. And, you know, you've <laughs> Vince Eager and... Cliff Richard and that's
2: your lot. every big town in the world, and most of the little ones has its markets. The place where you can pick up anything from a new suit of clothes to an argument with a copper. But nowadays, when everything's got to be bigger and better, they 've invented the supermarket spick and span and shining bright a street market with a top hat on marketplace.
0: I believe that this was this was your favorite of of, of the bunch yeah I'm interested to know how much of this is uh familiar to you in terms of your experience were there still these sort of markets going around when you were a wee nipper growing up in the east end
1: yeah well a few of them there were a few around i mean the one that was closest to me i think was uh romford market that was always a big one on a Saturday. not as big as your petticoat lanes or anything like that but just um that was a, a good one to go to on, on the weekends and um as far as the other ones that, like, that get mentioned in this film are concerned I, I never, because I never really sort of um, ventured far beyond my own sort of front gate for most of my childhood I was kind of quite I wasn't very well travelled let's put it that way but <laughs> it's strange that because like, I've been living here in New Zealand for about, what, nine coming up to nine years now and in the two years just before I left um, I got a job working in London um, in the sort of Aldgate area working for this sort of financial organisation and, um, you know, on a couple of occasions I sort of think, oh, I'd go out on my lunch break and I'll just go for a wander, just go for a walk and see where it takes me and I'd go down all these side roads and I remember one day suddenly arriving at Petticoat Lane, which is sort of in the Whitechapel area, as, it, as is mentioned in the mm. film. And I suddenly thought, good grief, and it felt like I'd been here, like, all my life. It seemed so familiar to me and I can't think why, except I think... Certainly when you're growing up in, in London, if you're my sort of age, chances are either somebody in your family used to go to Petticoat Lane Market regularly or someone you work with uh, yeah. would have done. So you heard about it a lot, even if you hadn't been there. And, and you know, when I when I suddenly sort of stumbled upon the place, um, like I say, about 10 years ago or something, it. It was sort of during the mid during midweek, so there was no big market stall out. There were a few stalls, but it wasn't taking up three quarters of a mile, as I think was mentioned in the thing. It, it I don't know. It just seemed so. It seemed atmospheric, even though there were hardly anybody, hardly people around, hardly any stalls set up. It's it's quite quite the place to visit, really. Just to say you've been there.
0: Yeah. yeah well, of course, it's very it's very trendy. And very, yeah. uh, It's sort of trendy and traditional at the same time. This, this film is dealing with this new modern supermarket and how it sits alongside these old traditional street markets. And it's, it, is, it, is a, it is a fascinating thing. I think you see it in other countries maybe more than you do in Britain now. You don't get the street markets so much mm. uh, in the same way. I mean, the Italians, they love a street market. They'll do all of their, yeah. just go out, see their mates, bark at each other and get <laughs> get, get the best deal possible on Jeez. San Marzano tomatoes. But these, th- this film, which again, narrated by Sid James, you do have to remind yourself when he's talking about all of the lovely, the money and flogging the table at home and all of this, <laughs> that he was actually a society hairdresser from Johannesburg <laughs> and not a an East End heavy
2: there's one thing that's the same in the supermarket and the street market and that is the end of the day checking up the lolly now I reckon that's the job I could handle, Laura I asked them once no thank you they said well that's about all there is everybody's shoving off to treat themselves if they got any money left dear oh dear oh dear look what they've left behind them On the other hand, at the supermarket, at the end of the day, you could still eat your grub off the floor, like we had to at home the time I plugged the table. Oh well, supermarket, street market. That's two sides of life in Britain today.
0: These markets, we, we, we look at a number of them. There's, um, as you say, Petticoat Lane, there's uh-huh. Berwick Street, which is out west and mostly for women. I'm not so quite sure is. what that even means. Farringdon Road the, my, was one of my favourite markets, which they they tried to shut it down, but they found that a lot of the vendors had life licences. So yes. what it seemed to me what they'd done instead was they just let the traffic roar past and yeah. let's let nature take its course. Then <laughs> you know you Natural stay selection. there, yeah, you stay there selling whatever you're selling, and we all just drive. Our cars pass, and which one of you blinks first?: There was a, a man who quite unironically said that his cookware had, hadn't seen daylight, moonlight or Fanny by the gaslight, which I thought <laughs> was I thought it was a line from Lockstock and two smoking barrels, but apparently, this was part of the patter, and we do learn a bit about the you know you've got to have good patter. Yes. And then you go inside the supermarket, which, as Sid James describes, is basically. Like an old market, a street market, but with a top hat on. Yeah,
1: um, You've got a roof over your loaf, as he says.
0: It's mostly for food, but and it but it's cleaner, it's tidier, it's posher. That was, actually looked like a fantastic supermarket. Rotisseries <laughs> yeah. on the wall. I mean, it must have been yeah. a Waitrose. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing a rotisserie in a supermarket when I was young. I mean, where did, where did, yeah, well, incredible. this is it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean. I can't remember seeing a supermarket as well-stocked or as just absolutely filled with, with these wonderful items. I mean, there was a Polish mm. delicatessen part. Oh. What, what part of... What, we, <laughs> there are supermarkets now where you still can't buy salami because it's, it's too sort of gauche. Where, in 1959, did they have rotisseries built into the wall? And a Polish delicatessen. And in fact, at one point, when Sid James is pointing out you can also get some queer grub <laughs> in the supermarket uh, as well as in the, uh, at the street market, there, there was a woman investigating a, a series of cans and she picks up a can of bees. A can <laughs> of bees. I've bees. never seen a can of bees. I've been to Asian grocer's And not seen a can of bees. But there was a can of bees, there was a can of caterpillars, and I've seen that before. And also a can of prawns, which by the time you've you've gone, maybe not bees tonight. Prawns is, is, you know, it's quite passe, isn't
1: Uh, it? (laughs) (laughs) Not having roast chicken again tonight off that rotisserie, are we, for God's sake? No, it's bees. Bees tonight.
0: Tin of bees. What do you serve with bees? I think my favourite part of, that, of this particular film was, um, and I think again, this would have been at Portobello Road. Uh, it's Tubby Isaacs, who. Yes. It's a name that I'm not sure how I know it. It might be from Danny Baker's autobiography, I think. Tubby mm. Isaacs of Aldgate selling his fish. And the, the best bit about it was the, the customers who were shoveling it in. Each of them with like a litre of malt vinegar in one hand. Just, <laughs> sh- just get, pouring on. If, if, if ever there needs to be one picture of Britain as a as a c- consumer of food, that's it. It's just a bloat with a handful of cockles and a bottle of vinegar. Get, get some vinegar on your food.
1: I mean, that, again, um, I'm not trying to kind of paint myself to be a, a, an authentic cockney or anything like that. If you think of me as a cockney, you're only half, right? Um, <laughs> it basically, like, but it, it's seafood, the eating of seafood, um, certainly when I was young, you'd see, um, you know, swarthy-looking sort of old guys with tattoos on their arms sort of outside pubs, like, shoveling in cockles and whelks and all that, and... <laughs> It was it was very much the thing, but it, it, I mean, I've, I, I'm a bit fussy about my seafood. I don't sort of eat that much of it. I used to quite like cockles and things, but whelks, oh dear me! But mm. but yeah, you had to have the old pepper, uh, white pepper, and uh, vinegar what, on it. It was, it was pe- the law.
0: Well, yeah, it's possibly because it'd been hanging around for a bit, and <laughs> you, you you didn't want to taste the funk of it being around <laughs> in the uh, in the open air for so long. <laughs>
1: But I, I saw I saw a clip earlier on um, um, because it's unfortunately why I tend to do a lot these days. I stumbled on a clip of Wogan from about nineteen eighty five-ish, six maybe, and it's and he's talking to well he reckons he's talking to Tubby Isaacs. He's not talking to Tubby. Isaacs. He's talking to the guy who has inherited the Tubby Isaacs uh, stall and everything. And um, and so this fella's telling Terry Wogan, look, there you go, there's a little potful of cockles and yeah. and he tells him to pour on chilli uh, vinegar, which I thought, well, that's quite go-ahead because I thought that was only a recent thing, like from about the 90s onwards that someone, you know, thought they'd just move things on a bit and give some yeah. chilli-infused oil. But apparently in, in the 80s that was, according to this fella, mm-hmm. the authentic accompaniment to your, to your seafood. Well, I'm... I'm- I I didn't think they'd invented chilies until
0: 1990. No. But there you go. <laughs> you can wash it down. Wash it down with a sarsaparilla. Sarsaparilla that you, could, that you can also get in the market. My favourite part of uh, of this film is the final line, which I think you
2: know <laughs> it, it, it bears it bears repeating. It's a good job we don't all like the same thing. Otherwise, there'd be no progress, would there?
0: What Sid James would have made of Twitter, I do not
1: know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: because yeah. if one, one word for you <laughs> there sid brexit
0: yeah with a, one, exa, one example of what happens if we all don't like the same thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> progress i suppose progress is a double-edged sword isn't it
1: yeah well i, I suppose even even today obviously you still got um street markets they're still around although not perhaps quite as popular and as we know, supermarkets are now in many cases so big that they take up out of town sites that are, mm-hmm. you know, the size of about twenty eight football pitches. And and mm-hmm. uh, you can see which one prospered in the end. But they, they do still coexist to some extent.
0: I think so. I mean, it's it, you can still uh, probably all of these markets are still there to a certain degree, particularly mm. in London and that you know the bigger towns in the, the, the in the north. Obviously, you, you they, they're. they're much more common than they are here i I, I base mm. I base all of my uh, all of my knowledge of markets on growing up in Brighton where you'll get a bank holiday market on a, a green and mm. if it's sunny everyone will go there and get ripped off and food poisoned <laughs> and if it's <laughs> rainy then you know
1: not so much yeah
0: say yeah. la vie but an absolutely thrilling and fascinating glimpse into the past you could go to a bygones museum forever and not get Mm. as much goodness as you can get really really rings out really real ringing out all the goodness from this world where you know worlds were starting to collide and people were selling Mm. things but as you as you say there was stuff on sale that you know actually seems quite modern
1: to the modern eye
0: Maybe maybe people from 1959 knew what they were doing. Who knew?
1: Who knew? <laughs> I just loved basically seeing the people of the day. They don't, they don't have to be doing anything, but just seeing what they're wearing. This it, 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 it is perhaps a perception of the 50s, I think, that it was a soulless, kind of colourless era. Um, I saw a Monty Python um, documentary a while back with talking about how they got to the point where they were... Um, forming the the monty python group but they were talking about when they grew up and went to university and i think eric Idle said immediately after the war he said britain was still in black and white for about another 15 years and you when you see this scene all these scenes of markets in this film there's hardly any color at all and like there's one shot you see one woman in in a mass of people and she's wearing like a red or a kind of pinky ready color coat and she stands out like a sore thumb yeah and and it's incredible but everyone's actually fairly smartly dressed all the men are wearing ties and yeah. uh, and 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 caps and the women are wearing headscarves and they're all there's not a, actually a shabby one amongst them it's just not a lot of color involved
0: yeah it's actually yeah, it's, it's very true let's get color out of british clothing let's all go back <laughs> to just gray and
2: Greys and browns.
0: Buff. Beige.
2: British racing cars with British drivers at the wheel are today supreme in the world of big-time car racing. No longer do the crowds look in the middle of the field for the racing green of Britain. They look way out in front.
0: The final film, uh, tactically, I put this at the end so I don't go on about it too long, uh, (laughs) is Kings of Speed from 1959. Now... In the world of motor racing, in 1958, there had been one of motor racing's occasional sea changes where British manufacturers had taken over. They were now ruling the roost. Italian manufacturers were yesterday's papers because of their bizarre Mm. insistence on putting the engine in the front of their cars. The British garagistes, as Enzo Ferrari, used to dismissively described them, made lightweight cars, put the engine in the back and were clearing up and this is the subject of this film which is based partly at the British Grand Prix in Aintree and partly at Brands Hatch where Cooper, who were the leaders, who the, 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 the people who had invented this incredible shattering idea of engine in the back had a racing school, which I thought was very publicly minded of them <laughs> considering <laughs> One thing that struck me immediately with the racing school is that if they found somebody who had particularly high talent, and they said well, one in 75 might have mm. good, a, good, a good level of talent, they would actually then essentially sponsor them. They would give them a car, they would give them the wherewithal to try and explore this talent further. And of course, this is what happened with a number of drivers of the time. Uh, I believe Graham Hill began at the Brands Hatch motoring school. Paid uh, paid a quid for four laps, and that was it. (laughs) He was in again. Safety not paramount. Terrifying lack of safety. Actually, all those little um, fiberglass, paper thin fiberglass helmets that some of them wore, (laughs) and no no seat belts. You could understand why the the mother of Margaret Ellsworth Jones of London, who's one of the number of women who have a go at the racing school, weren't keen. It's an interesting world to see the number of people who were interested in giving it a go. Because, again, <laughs> this is as dangerous as any of the jobs in the first film. This is more dangerous. Mm. Back then, this is pretty much
1: as dangerous as it gets. Yeah, you keep your wall of death i mean just there's one shot just uh, in in that film where you see one of the cars taking a corner and the way it skids out and twitches my heart leapt in i just thought mm-hmm. oh my god what's gonna and then he, the driver straightens up again and everything's fine but you just think wow that's yeah. that's a, that's scary driving i don't know that you know motor racing drivers go around up very High speeds that's in the nature of the thing, but it was just that momentary what I thought was going to be a lack of control and and, I should, and and there's also a shot of a little sign that's pinned up saying something like uh you know uh please be aware you know this is a dangerous uh mm. sport or dangerous thing going on, so you know please and it was almost like this like the last shot from a public information film about you know don't Hang around near pylons—a subject I believe you've already uh, discussed. Well, yes. Link,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Don't hang around near pylons. Don't hang around but, near people racing cars in the 1950s. No, there's quite a patriotic bent to this film. I think it's be very difficult to deny that there's a lot of trumpet blowing. A- as the mechanics are fettling the cars at aintree getting ready for the British Grand Prix, we've we've got the latest British drivers. obviously Sterling Moss. In his BRM. Uh-huh. Tony Brooks is pictured in a van wall, which is very patriotic. But in fact, in 1959, Tony Brooks was driving for Ferrari. So I'm not quite sure how they. <laughs> maybe they put a bis- biscuit in the seat or something. <laughs> and, and we also meet the, the latest, the newest star racing for Britain. And you know, you, you can tell him that. It's Jack Bradham <laughs> from Australia. Yeah. The Australian and, and New Zealand influx. Of racing right. drivers at the time. Lots of... I mean, obviously you've got Jack Bram and New Zealand's Bruce McLaren, of course. Mm-hmm. Very talented mechanics and engineers who later founded their own very successful teams. But the idea it of did. them racing for Britain is fascinating to me. Mm. I mean...
1: Part of the Colonies, you know, we'll, well have them.
0: I'm good. We'll have them. I mean, I don't know whether or not people still don't... Just Germany celebrate a Lewis Hamilton victory because he's racing, racing for Germany. Is Max Verstappen racing for Austria? I don't know. I mean, I've never, I've never heard it phrased quite that way. And I think that there's a, <laughs> a certain amount of excited bugle blowing because, as as I say, Britain has all of a sudden taken this position in world motor racing where. They were unbeatable, unassailable. And in fact, they've never really looked back from this point. There have been a number of other important sea changes, but they were all happened involving British teams. And every time, the British teams went out further. Meanwhile, of course, John Cooper's producing thousands and thousands of these cars in his factory in Surbiton. And they're training people up at at brands hatch it's like it's it's military precision really they're unbelievable yeah. we, we're going to rule motor racing for the next thousand years and so so far so good but this is and, this and is built on
1: yeah as i say all built on these people who essentially buy and build their own cars and go to race days and and um so there's lots of um raw talent coming through and 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 there's a facility to for, to training, for training them up. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I had no idea really until sort of seeing this film that it was quite so well organised even back then. As a buff, I was
0: fairly familiar with most of this stuff. But I, I have to say I was a little surprised when I discovered that they'd made, by 1959, 1, that's mm. a thousand cars. That's a fleet. There are car companies yeah. who make road cars who can't produce a thousand cars mm. in that time. And these are all being knocked up in a shed in Surbiton. Uh, obviously, every single one of them a death trap. But well, you know,
1: get this without saying perhaps yes.
0: When you've got your when you've got your sign up that, that, that warns everyone that it's dangerous, that's all you need. Back in back in the fifties, <laughs> golden age, really. I, I look back now. Gonna, i have going My relationship with the fifties, I think, has changed.
1: Well, there was. It was an era where you were, you know, required to use a bit of sense, common sense. Like, yeah, you know, we don't have to explain everything. We're not. We're not assuming you're a, an idiot. So, we'll, we'll give you the bare minimum of information, and then we'll leave it up to you to make your own precautions and and uh, or take your own precautions. And um, I think there's something quite commendable about that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, having seen. British people in their natural element. <laughs> I am also quite supportive of uh, there being a certain amount of requisite safety gear because people are idiots and will do stupid, well, yeah. stupid things. <laughs> but then again, you know, shouldn't we leave people to do stupid, make your own mistakes? You know, mm. throw frisbees around in a <laughs> power station,
3: find <laughs> out what happens.
0: So that that's five. That's five looks at life. As I say, there's 500, and YouTube is absolutely mm. packed full of them. You can get them on DVD. I've learnt some stuff that no doubt will come in handy. You know, if if I ever talking to somebody who lives in the estuary area of the country who's complaining about their house subsiding, and I'll go probably because <laughs> it's built on rubbish. And I've <laughs> I've actually I've actually learnt some stuff that I didn't know and. Hmm. I'm sure people who do the, the the same jobs now would be absolutely mind-blown by how different it is, but of course how similar it is as well. I'm mm. sure that not a lot has changed in the world of quarrying. Oh, <laughs> I mean, obviously the the urgency with which it's needed is maybe a little bit different. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me. It's been... You're welcome. It's been a great pleasure to not just be sitting here worrying about what I'm going to tell these people this week. <laughs> and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get you along again soon to discuss any number of exciting issues. And uh, hopefully Ian will even turn up this time. <laughs>
1: um, I think I'd be he's... more than happy to. Thank you, for, thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure's mine.
0: Well it's always been exciting. You got anything getting uh, any anything worth worth some plugging at the moment?
1: Yeah, just uh, just uh, you mentioned the football kit thing earlier on. It's uh, there's this website called kitbliss kitbliss.co.nz. It's just essentially me occasionally illustrating football kits to to create a, an online uh, record of how football kit designers changed really uh, for various teams it's it's nothing more nothing less than that that's been going for a long time and it just sort of dribbles on yeah. really it's, you know um, that's just it k- keeps me occupied keeps the brain ticking over yeah. so if anyone wants to look at that they are more than love
0: bit, we all love a bit of kit bliss basically it's oh. essentially it's it's the look at life of football kits in many ways <laughs> it's uh, it's a social document yeah. really
1: And also, it's not just sort of illustrating football kits as they actually exist. It's also, there's occasionally I'll give myself uh, an opportunity to just illustrate what people call fantasy kits, which is just kits based on, say, a particular theme, like, um, you know, the old ITV regions, for example. So I'll design kits based on the eye dents for Southern TV and Grampian TV, which you think, why would anybody do that? But it's, funnily enough, people seem to really like Fantasy kind oh, designs. Yeah. If you pick the right subjects, yeah. well,
0: I mean, there's probably there's probably enough fodder in these episodes, so you can, you could do a series of coffee bars, what? and <laughs> and maybe even one for Tubby Isaacs. The sponsor the sponsor would have to be <laughs> Sarsons,
1: I'm sure. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. yes, yes, uh, yeah. Each, uh, yeah, that's right. And and themed themed coffee bars. I think the, the macabre coffee uh, <laughs> bar will have to have its own kit i think
0: so there you go another episode done we've got one more of these before ian returns and no doubt tells us all about what he's been up to in the meantime my thanks again to chris for joining us and my thanks to you for continuing to support the 200 Percent podcast
2: Again. There's only one tosher. Yeah. Come here, boy. I'll give you a new type for that. that really? Here you don't buy one, oh, come here. Take that all. I'll give you a new type. You can have a two-bob one, a half a crown one, three-bob one, four-bob one, six-bob one. Go steady. The game's bad. And so don't need precious. too many. You You want to turn that poop game up over oh, there? I no. this one. No. No. Don't worry. I'm the bloke. This is my stall. I'm my stall. There's not a man like me for selling them. I'll tell you straight.